and, and as wide of a range as I can, uh, because I think that the word itself, mindfulness, is very misleading. It doesn't, it's hard to describe, I think, to some degree, when we use the word mindfulness. And we use it a lot now, actually. We don't, uh, you know, I was just at Whole Foods getting some, getting some groceries, and it was like, in the rack at the sort of natural food places on these mindfulness magazines. And it's really become a, almost an everyday term that we use. And, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, people would never even say the word mindfulness. Um, and it's actually a fairly new term. It does come from the Buddhist tradition. But the term was dubbed in the late 1800s, I think it was 1881, by a guy named Rhys David, who was an English scholar, who was one of the first English people who started to study the earliest texts in Buddhism. And he came across this word, sati, satipatthana, which means the foundations of mindfulness. And he translated it in 1881 as mindfulness, and we kind of got stuck with it. Um, so the word's just barely over 100 years old in our in English language. And really, we didn't really start using it until maybe the last 40 or 50 years with the kind of um, the adaption of insight meditation uh, from, the, from northern India, from people like Goenka, Jack Kornfield, Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg were doing actually what they call Vipassana meditation, insight practice. And in most recent colloquial terms, mindfulness. And I think mindfulness really started to blow up when John Kabat-Zinn uh, discovered or really invented this thing called mindfulness-based stress reduction, MBSR, which is a clinical um, practice used to reduce stress. It was actually was originally created to, for pain management and mindfulness-based stress reduction. So I want to talk about this word sati because it, it, it's profoundly rich in meaning and application in the early Buddhist tradition. And, it, and it's, very, uh, it's very simple, the word sati, it, but it's also very complex, which I know kind of makes the brain stretch a little bit. It's like, well, wait a minute, it can't be both. And a lot of stuff in Dharma practice, a lot of the Buddhist teachings kind of land in this very simple but yet very complex. In mindfulness as a practice, uh, there's so many kinds of mindfulness practices. To actually say, to e for even me to sit down and say I'm going to practice mindfulness is almost an inaccurate statement. Or what, what does that actually mean to be mindful, to have mindfulness? I know that I used to find the term to be this very misleading because I would think to myself, my mind is already full. Like that's the problem. My mind is full. I totally have mindfulness. I need mind emptiness, <laughs> right? And so it, it, it points to things like awareness. How do we become more aware? Mindfulness and awareness are probably synonyms the way we hold them. Or maybe mindfulness sometimes simply can mean to just pay attention. Be mindful of closing the door. People say that, oh, could you be mindful? Could you be mindful of this? Could you be mindful of that? And basically what they're saying is, could you pay attention? which is somehow it's been reduced to kind of this pay attention. Uh, the other way that it's been kind of reduced is as kind of a prescription for mental suffering. And so the problem is I have too much mental and emotional difficulty in my life and the prescription is mindfulness. 
And if you just bring mindfulness in, then all the mental and emotional affliction will like magically vanish. Just be in the present moment all the time and everything will be great. I don't think so. And I think that that's sort of the modern uh, delusion around mindfulness is that it's sort of become this silver bullet. But just be mindful, just have mindfulness and everything will be great. Um, and my experience is mindfulness will put you in touch with your problems a lot faster than it will solve them for you. And usually I find over the years that when people start to practice mindfulness, at first there can be kind of a sense of relief. Of like, oh, this is, it feels really good at the onset just to get a break from this thing for two or three in or out breaths. But then it starts to actually work and we start to become aware of some things about ourselves or our lives or our minds that we're not particularly excited about. Or that we're upset about, we're disappointed, we're aggravated. I should be like this, I shouldn't be like that. Why is my mind like this? And then the practice really takes on a type of an edge. Right? And then we're really trying to uh, change our neural structure in, in neuroscience, they talk about neuroplasticity and that the brain is not this sort of you know, dilapidated contraption that we've all inherited. It's actually changeable. And just like if I were to get a paper cut on my finger, my body would heal and a couple days later it would heal up and it would be gone. That mental affliction, the brain, the mind also can heal from any of our psychic wounds, emotional wounds, difficult experiences in the past. Um, it turns out you can teach an old dog new tricks. Right? But, you know, it takes time to do that. So when we look at this term mindfulness, what we're really looking at is this Pali term, sati, which, which points to, to remember and to recognize. So it's about uh, remembering, but not about memories. Not like I remember when I was a kid, we went to vacation in Cape Cod. But just the actual, not memory as a, as a noun, but memory as a verb, remembering. And my teacher, Steve Armstrong, has the best definition of mindfulness that I love. He keeps it real simple. He says it's to remember to recognize the present moment experience. You have to remember to recognize that you're here. And that a lot of the things you're worried about, concerned about, afraid of happening, aren't happening right here, right now. They're imagined. They're in a conceptual, imaginative mind. Remember to recognize the present moment experience. So sati is all about remembering to recognize what's right in front of you. So we could call that the present moment. How do you spell sati? S-A-T-I. Is it related to sat? No, I don't think so. It comes from the, um, so in, 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 in Pali it's sati, in Sanskrit it's shmerti, which also comes from the uh, Indian tradition, which actually is about memory. It's also about learning. So there's a historical context to the term shmurti, which is trying to remember that which has been said long ago. And the reason why they talk about that is in northern India at the time of the Buddha, they didn't have language, they didn't write things down, they didn't have written shaped letters, so they had to remember everything through oral tradition. So part of mindfulness, shmurti, sati, is to remember, to recognize things that have been said long ago that are wise and useful and appropriate. So actually, there's a, there's a part of mindfulness, sati, that's actually about learning. 
which I never hear so much. Because a lot of times when we sit in mindfulness practice, when I practice mindfulness, there's always this kind of energetic feeling in the mind of like, I'm looking for something. Well, looking at the breath, okay, I got that one. The body got that one. You know, it's like we're, we're, we're looking for something. A lot of times we're looking for some privileged experience that somehow is going to transcend the ordinariness of the mind-body system. And we want some spiritual goodies or whatever. We, want some, we read something, we heard about something, we, we want something else to happen that's going to be, you know, pleasant, spiritual, bliss. We're looking for. And, and that, that in and of itself is problematic. Because if we're looking for something, what are we, we're not learning a whole lot. So mindfulness is really has a component of it, of what is it that we can learn about our minds and our lives by simply observing what happens when we watch the mind. So sati has an observation-like quality, observing. Uh, in, in neuroscience, it's called metacognition, which is kind of just being able to monitor, to self-monitor, which I really like that term because I think it really hits it right on the head. Monitoring, self-monitoring the arising of sensations in the body, emotions, I feel sad, I feel upset, I feel angry, I feel joy. We don't know what we're feeling when we're feeling it much of the time. We're mostly reacting to what's happening. Being aware of monitoring thoughts as a plan or a memory or as a forecasting or a regretting or what, what is it that's happening and what sometimes what they call in trauma therapy a cognitive sweeping which is just taking the awareness and kind of looking through the thoughts and what is the nature of these thoughts? What am I doing? Am I, oh, I'm thinking, oh, gee, I think about that. All I do is think about the future. I'm a planner. Any planners in the room? Anybody got a big old to-do list going? I just never ends. It's like, oh, I do that a lot. Okay. Not that that's bad or wrong and I need to stop doing that, but do I need to do it all the time? What of my cognitive habits can I kind of put aside? I don't need to do that right now. don't need to do this right now. don't need to worry about that right now. I'll get to that later. You know, in, in, in Western therapy, they just kind of call that executive function. Mm-hmm. Time management. Being able to just manage our day-to-day experiences. And not that we're supposed to have this kind of like locked down in the present moment experience where we shouldn't think about the past or the future. We have to think about the past and the future. We wouldn't get anything done if we didn't. So what can we learn? Part of mindfulness, I think, there's a learning component about that. And again, back to the the way we pathologize and overdiagnose any sort of mental difficulty. Um, When we talk about learning, we're not trying to fix. We're just trying to learn some things about what are some of the habits, behavioral habits, psychological habits that kind of get me in trouble? You know, what are the things that cause unnecessary suffering in my life? And if you have more information about what causes unnecessary suffering in your lives, and we have more opportunity to do something about that. If we don't know, if you don't know, you don't know. You can't do much if you don't know. So there's also a knowing quality of mindfulness. It's something that's being known. The mind loves to know. It's one of its favorite things to do. I really don't like being confused. 
I really don't like being frustrated. And when I'm confused and frustrated, it's that I'm craving for, I'm, I'm, there's something that I'm not knowing that I really feel like I need to know. And sometimes I just need to know that frustration and confusion is a mental state that I need to unhook from. Then I can relax and kind of breathe down. And so the simplicity of mindfulness is that this word sati, again, if I can get through all four of them, hopefully, uh, is that there's a Buddhist scholar named Rupert Gethin who's, uh, there's been a lot of people in the last 10 or 15 years who have really combed the earliest teachings and from an academic language and have really kind of redefined a lot of these things much more accurately. And he, he says that, the, that sati is really summed up in four different kinds of um, things, four categories. Uh, and also the things, not to make it more confusing for you, but they say that mindfulness has um, different applications on different, different applications for different reasons and different purposes. So there's not just a one thing, mindfulness, just that's what we want, what's the one thing? Just be mindful all the time. So there's a lot of different ways in which this thing kind of works. And the first one, and the most obvious one, I think, and the most valuable one for many of us is what they call simple awareness, which is just the experience of simply being aware, which is mostly what I do when I practice meditation. Almost all of the instructions that you get when you come to a group like this is really trying to get us to just simply become aware of what it is that's happening. When I'm sitting, I'm breathing, I'm hearing, I feel warm, got some active activity in my mind, okay, don't need to contribute to that, let that one go. It's just that simple awareness. And I think we do a lot of activities in our daily life that allow us to establish or cultivate simple awareness. Maybe we don't realize that's what we're doing. Maybe you take a walk, or you have some place in your house that you like to sit. You have, where do you have your morning coffee or your morning tea, right? There's a lot of times in our life where we're just sitting somewhere, doing something very basic, and that feels good, right? That feels familiar to just kind of, hmm, not doing anything in particular, but just simply being aware, not planning, not regretting, not trying to fix, but just maybe even enjoying resting. Sometimes this it also denotes what they, they use this term, abiding, just abiding. Just sitting, it's okay to be here. I'm here, it's okay to be here. Present time awareness, at ease. And that in its most simple form is really what sati is getting to. And I also believe, and there's many different theories on it, but when we look in the later t traditions, in the, the tail end of the Theravada, there's a, 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 a teaching, or really a large text called Abhidharma, which is a Buddhist psychology, and where in Sati is actually considered a wholesome state of mind. It's one of 26 beautiful mental states that arise. So in, in that tradition, that no harm could be created intentionally in a, whole, in a, in a state of, of pure mindfulness, sati, mindfulness. And whether that's true or not, I prefer to choose that that's sort of what the Buddha is speaking to. It's a, a harmless state of mind. We wouldn't cause harm to ourselves or others through thoughts, words, actions. And so that's that simple, kind, benevolent, harmlessness aspect of mindfulness. And I think that if that's all you get out of mindfulness, cool. Nothing wrong with that. 
that, 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 that just in its most basic form, in its most simplest form, sati, a simple awareness, is something that we all could probably spend more time doing. And those of us with busy, active lives probably would benefit much from seeing it that way. But it goes on further, in that there's also an aspect of sati that goes from simple awareness is to what's called protective awareness, which is where we uh, try to protect the mind from harmful scenarios. So when we're sitting and practicing in meditation, we might notice our primary object is on the breath, but then we have this secondary object that's kind of over here, like what is that over here? That's maybe, uh, I don't know, rehearsing an argument you're going to have with somebody later and how you're going to win that argument and you're going to come up with this witty, awesome thing to say to them that's going to, you know, maybe it's a little bit of ill will, maybe it's not the kindest type of thinking. And we would protect ourselves. We would say, okay, that's, that's a kind of thinking that I don't want to encourage. So we protect our mind from that. And we, we, don't, we don't go there. People who, I've worked in substance abuse for a long time, it's like, People who are trying to stop drinking, probably a good idea to not go in the bar, right? Because, you know, so there's a way you're protecting yourself against situations and scenarios where you might engage in something harmful. We might avoid certain people at times. We might avoid certain conversations. We might have a difficult conversation with somebody that we care about, and maybe we, at the time, feel like, okay, I'm not really ready to have this conversation right now. Have you ever been bullied into a conversation with somebody that you weren't ready to have? <laughs> yeah. So we want to protect ourselves, and, and part of this protective awareness is, in colloquial terms, where we really learn how to set boundaries. Like, actually, you know what, I'm not available for that conversation right now. I'm tired, I don't feel good, now is not the right time to go down this road. So there's a way in which mindfulness knows to protect ourselves from, from things that we know are going to potentially cause harm to ourselves or to others. And so we kind of can guard. And that protective awareness is really established at all of the sensory doors. You know, noticing that we, um, of course, we know that the Buddhist framework is the understanding that as human beings, our biggest dilemma is that we, we, we want things to be pleasant and we don't want things to be unpleasant and we do all kinds of strange and unusual things to try to get rid of what we don't want and get what we have through craving and clinging and attachment and many of us have seen that that has not been a very successful strategy. So we want to protect ourselves and have this kind of inner sense of sometimes what we would use this word renunciation which is kind of a problematic term because I don't think I use that word very much, but just giving up that which is unnecessary, not needing anything extra. Don't need to do that. Can let that one go. What are the things that we could let go of? I wish I didn't look at my phone as much as I do. It's an ongoing practice for me. You know, There's a lot of different things that I find, okay, I don't want to engage in these things. And a lot of the things is, you know, when I'm having an emotional feeling, if I feel sad or scared or angry, those are moments where I tend to kind of do something that's maybe slightly destructive. Look at my phone, eat too much sugar, whatever, whatever. You know, there's all these little, we all have these weird little habits that we don't even know that we have much of the time. So there's this simple awareness, there's this protective awareness. Then there's also what's called introspective awareness, which is really what 
one of the terms that they use now in, in secular psychology around mindfulness and metacognition is that when protective awareness fails and we're unable to protect ourselves, we have introspective awareness, which is kind of like the, the, the analogy of the other person. is like, okay, I'm going to protect myself against this person that I don't like. I wasn't able to do that. Now I'm face to face with this person that I don't like. And I'm really, really not liking this person. Maybe I'm even hating this person, right? And I can look back into my mind and go, okay. Uh, I have hatred in my mind. And not that I'm bad or wrong, not to judge ourselves, but to recognize, oh, hatred snuck in. It got in there. I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> it snuck in the back door. Jealousy, greed, envy, uh, comparing, uh, all of these kind of, you know, not, you know, not beautiful states of mind, but these slightly destructive states of mind, they sneak in. And so, when we want to try to guard the mind against us, we want to become aware once, once the walls have been invaded. And one of the, the, in the Pali Suttas, the Buddhist teachings, there's all these really great stories. The Buddha gives these great analogies, and one of them he gives of mindfulness, of sati as a guardian, is he talks about there being this like fortress with, with six entrances. There's six gates to the fortress. And that at every single gate, sati, Mindfulness is the guardian at that gate. So he's making an analogy of the, the five senses that you learned in kindergarten, smelling, tasting, seeing, hearing, uh, sensations in the mind. That mindfulness stands at all of these gates and tries to guard against strangers and harmful visitors and only allows in friends, only allows in friendly experiences. Right? But of course, we all know at times, you know, the guards get lazy, they fall asleep, they go take a break, they sneak out for a cup of coffee, and what happens? Jealousy and envy and greed and hatred and delusion and all these things. They get in frustration, they get in. And that introspective awareness allows us to know and to recognize, oh, I'm having a lot of resistance in my mind right now, a lot of judgment, right? And when we look at that, this is really, I think, one of the most, I have found for me personally, the most useful mode of mindfulness is this introspective awareness. Because what it does is it challenges me to take responsibility for my attitude. Right? Because I don't know about you, I mean, like, when we're trying to have an objective awareness towards experience, I would love to say I'm able to do that, but I have a very subjective attitude towards most things. So as I'm sitting or I go through life, all these objects arise. Some of the objects I like, I want to have that object, I want to get rid of that object, that's kind of what I do. Grabbing and dropping. And what happens is when, I, when, I'm, in a really, when I'm in a state of like frustration or anger and some object arises, I take all the frustration and anger and I just lob it on top of the object. And I think the object all I can see is the things about the object that are bad or wrong and why that object is making me angry and frustrated. Well, if it wasn't doing this, and it wasn't doing that. And all I can see is all these qualities in the object that are unpleasant, disagreeable, shouldn't be. But I don't realize that I am wearing my frustration glasses and I'm just taking all those things and I'm projecting them onto the object. So in introspective awareness, we're trying to say, well, just let the object go for a second and see if you can be aware of these. Well, what do these look like? Oh, boy, everything looks bad for these. 
These glasses need to be clean, man. It's like I can't see clearly. I'm frustrated. Everybody's out to get me. Don't trust any of these people. It's like, oh. Oh, okay. Cool. Actually, you guys are okay again. Right? It's this kind of way in which the mind becomes clouded. There's always some kind of filter on, on our perception, which is a huge aspect of what affects everything in our lives, our inner world, our outer world, is how we perceive. It's one of the, in Buddhist psychology, it's one of the five aggregates, or it's one of the five functions that arise in every moment we perceive in a particular kind of way. So it's really in our advantage to become more aware of how we're seeing. Am I seeing through the lens of aversion or attachment? You know, I, I go into Whole Foods. I don't get to go to Whole Foods very much because I don't come here that much. But I, I, it's like everything, I just, my mind, the greed filter comes on. I'm like, oh man, like, I don't have that much time. I'm late for the group. I got to hustle. I got to get this. I got to get that. Everything looks good. Right? It's like I don't really, and then it's like I forget about money and it's just like all of a sudden, you know, Whole Foods is like, what, like 90 bucks a bag, I think, right? Is the math on that place? You know? I don't go in there with my averse. I don't go in there and be like, oh, I don't know about this. I love it because there's so much great stuff in there. So I have to be, I know that when I walk into that situation, I have to become aware of what type of filter or attitude is likely to come online. You know, you go visit your relatives or your family for the holiday. What kind of lens are you going to put on before you walk into the house? So this way we, we can learn, we can become prepared about we all have situations in our life that challenge us. So when we become aware of the situations and the circumstances in our lives that challenge us, it's much in our interest to learn to understand what type of an attitude or type of filter am I going to bring to that experience so I don't just walk into the room and just project all of my present concerns or fears, anticipations onto the object. Does that make sense? Now, in the schema of practice, this is so important because one of the things about mindfulness practice is it's become object, people privilege the object. There's the breathing object, the body object, what's the, what's the right object that I'm supposed to pay attention to? Which is part of practice. It does build concentration and focus. But I think it's more important to look at how am I looking at this object? Right? How do I look at the breath? I look at the breath, I think, pretty boring. There's got to be anything. There's got to be something more interesting to pay attention to. What if, well, so what if boring becomes the object? What is boring like? I don't like boring. Okay, well, that's much more useful. So when you look at the object and the attitude, a lot of like the Brahma Vihara practices, the loving kindness practices, compassion practices, are really trying to train us to see the world and to see experience through more... Uh, of a filter that is more compassionate, more, gra- more grateful, more kind, more benevolent, more understanding, rather than seeing the world through what's in, it, what's in it for me, what can I get out of this place, what can I get rid of, what can I avoid, who's in my way, whose fault is it, how am I going to figure out how to get them back, right? you know, this kind of whole strategizing that we get into. I don't have time to explain the fourth one, but I'll say a few words about it. Is the fourth mode of sati is about the deliberately 
deliberately forming conceptions. So very much of the Brahma Vihara practice is about that. It's actually deliberately trying to conceptualize or to form, to make a formation in the mind that is more kind, more benevolent, more understanding. It's the actual using thinking in its proper form. Because I know that mindfulness, when I talk to people, one of the big misunderstandings is that thinking is like a problem and we're not, when we're meditating, we're not supposed to be thinking. And I don't know where people get that idea from because you are not going to shut that one off. Your mind is not going to stop thinking. One of the Buddhist monks I sat with a, a, for a long time named Ajahn Sanchito said, he said, if you want to see a person not thinking, look at a corpse. And I was like, damn, that's kind of a bold statement. <laughs> He's like, you are going to keep thinking it's how do we use our thinking in a way that leads towards well-being rather than unhealthy attitudes and behaviors and so forth. So I always like to save some time for questions and I want to do that. So thank you for your attention this morning, this afternoon. <laughs>